On this episode of Come Pray With Me, I will be interviewing Rabbi Kevin Bernstein of Seaside Jewish Community, a non-denominal Jewish congregation from Sussex County, Delaware. He will be sharing how different sects of Judaism coexist and learn from each other, as well as the significance of the Yiddish language to Jewish people. Welcome to the show, Rabbi Bernstein. It's lovely to have you on. It's nice to be here. Okay, so how does uh, being by the water influence the way that the Seaside Jewish community practices their faith? So part of the answer is um, a little bit um, interesting and a, a little bit humorous, and that is that um, when Jews pray, there are times where um, we um, uh, will face the East, um, and that's because the East from where we live right now in America is let's say the closest direction, either you and I know that we could face either direction and still be um, facing the correct direction since our earth is round. But, um, but we face east because that's where the, um, uh, the holy temple, the original place that we um, uh, prayed at um, is located east of here. And so one of the kind of funny ways that it relates is that um, I am often leading services from my basement in Philadelphia to a group of people who are all in their homes on a, a Zoom service. And um, I imagine that when I tell them to face east, it's probably a lot easier for them than it is for many people um, because they're probably always aware of which way the ocean is for them. And that's the way that they face. Uh, the other thing I would say is that um, I, again, I don't know how much it affects people's belief and people's faith, um, besides for the point that for many people, being near the ocean or being um, uh, within the sound of the ocean or the sight of the ocean can be a very spiritual experience. Um, watching the water, I think all of us have sort of been um, uh, uh, influenced by and had the experience of watching water or watching waves and becoming mesmerized to it. And that's sort of sometimes a good introduction and a good way um, into the spiritual for us. The way that it has affected the community um, in a much more major way is that uh, Seaside is a, you could sort of divide Seaside into two communities that um, have come together. One is the community of people that uh, grew up in Sussex County in Delaware and have lived there all their lives. And now uh, for many years, they had this small uh, community seaside to uh, connect and to feel part of uh, a Jewish community. But over the years, because it's near the water, because it's a shore point, um, many people have chosen in the later parts of their life um, after retirement, or in some cases, as soon as they can to live at least partially or in some cases full-time at their, um, uh, at, near the shore, near Rehoboth Beach, which is where the uh, community has its building. And um, because of that, a whole new group and a whole um, other set of community people have come and um, come from. And so um, that's what the seaside community is sort of made up of, these two different groups. And they bring with them different experiences and different life experiences different expectations, uh, different ways to connect to communities. And that's one of our blessings. And it's also one of our challenges to sort of, you know, balance that and to see um, how that all comes together. So 
that's the main thing that I can think of that we're affected by the water in that the water and the shore are very nice pe places for people not only to live, but to move to and to live in later parts of their life. And that's had a very, very big effect on the seaside community. I think that is a really interesting aspect and water plays a lot of crucial roles in all sorts of different religions like Christians will baptize people in water or in Islam you do a certain cleansing before you pray or in some Buddhist temples you do a small cleansing before you enter. There's something very profound about a large uh, body of water especially one with which from which you can't see the other side you know so that really brings in a lot to people's spirituality and consciousness. And there are certainly um, a few parts of uh, uh, Judaic rituals that we also have that involve um, water or running water or, 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 or things like that. And yes, it's very handy to um, you know, have those in your backyard, so to speak, um, as, as tools for your spirituality. It also reminds me of uh, in the story where Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt and they were wandering through the desert and things had been really difficult and they were starting to really get worn down. But then they found this huge river and there's a, an old uh, Hebrew song about it called Mayim or water. And it's basically like the celebration of life and knowing that they were looked after and everything would be okay. And there's a, a strong tradition also that while they were wandering through the desert, um, the person who was most instrumental um, to finding water and locating it and bringing it to them was um, Miriam, who was Moses' sister. And so there is a tradition of connecting her to these springs, to these sources of water, and making that part of um, uh, her heritage and what she brought sort of to the table and what she brought into Judaism. And that's been connected with um, uh, some prayers and some spiritual practices and uh, especially connected to um, uh, what we call a mikvah, which is a, um, a ritual um, uh, bath where, um, and it's no, it's no secret that that's also connected to the um, to the development of baptismal water. That's where that comes from in terms of that sort of tradition. And so there's also a connection to Miriam, who's attributed as having um, been responsible for those, um, for those findings and for that, that part of our heritage and that part of our tradition. So you mentioned earlier that you have a couple of online classes, and I noticed that you have a program titled Yiddish Songs of the American Labor Movement. Could you tell us a little bit more about the program and what the significance of Yiddish is to Jewish people? It's one of the programs that um, the way this works at Seaside is there is a committee, a very active committee, and in fact most of the committees at, um, at Seaside are extremely active. It's very member involved and, um, and to a, a large degree member-led. And so this um, adult education committee um, is responsible for, you know, developing, coming up with, connecting with um, programs that would be um, of interest to people. 
And this is indeed um, one of them that one can connect to. I think that um, one of the ways that it's really significant is as a way of sort of connecting and noting that Jewish communities are very diverse for, um, in, in some ways. In some ways, they're not so diverse. Um, and I say that mostly in terms of ethnically um, and racially. Um, there are certainly um, Jews of color and there are Jews of, um, uh, of all kinds of nationalities and coming from different places. They still are a relatively small amount of Jews. And in fact, um, the vast, vast, vast majority of Jewish people who are living in America um, came from what we call um, an Ashkenazi background. And that is Jews whose ancestors were in um, uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and, and that is a very, very large percentage of the Jews um, in America. And, and that sort of reflects and indicates, um, is represented by uh, the interest in this particular program. And that is that um, the uh, language, and really for many people at that time, um, their, um, their, their main um, uh, language was indeed Yiddish. And that's what they grew up understanding and speaking. And only as they became more assimilated and more educated, perhaps, in their own communities, did they learn either the German or the Polish or the Russian, or in very, very few cases, the English language that they were surrounded by um, in their communities. And so Yiddish was really a language that kept them together. And when they came to America in large numbers, um, to some extent, that Yiddish was perpetuated. To some extent, it was left. Uh, to some extent, that was left on purpose because there were many Jews who came during those years who wanted to forget the fact that they were immigrants and they wanted to blend in as much as they could. And so they didn't want to speak Yiddish to each other. They wanted to speak English because they wanted to become real Americans, you know, in their minds. Um, so there is a, a great interest in um, keeping that language alive. Um, the language is surrounded by a culture. Um, and keeping that culture alive. And so that reflects one of the aspects of this program of why there's interest in it. Um, but the other part of the program is the labor movement um, because that is also part of a deep part of American Jewish heritage and tradition. Um, Jews, uh, and I'm speaking, let's say from the late 1800s um, to the present time, um, Jews were very involved in the labor movement and um, let's say, you know, pro-labor. Part of it was because uh, as they were coming up and, um, and, and moving through American society and advancing in American society, that was part of what they did through hard work, through working in, um, in industry in some cases and through working in trades. And so that was a big part of what they were involved with. And so there's a real connection with both, both of those things. And so it's very natural that there were um, Yiddish songs from the labor movement. Some of them are translated from the original to uh, Yiddish. Some of them were created in Yiddish and that's what this, um, this program will sort of delve into. Um, I think what's really important to take from this is that um, our Jewish community today is composed of many different um, ideas and many different what I would call expressions of Judaism. Some people choose to express their Judaism through prayer and that's what they like about a synagogue and that's what they look towards a synagogue. Some people express their Judaism through Jewish learning. 
Um, and, and that is something that they, you know, look for sometimes through a synagogue. But as you probably know, there are many ways outside of a synagogue to get Jewish learning and to connect to other places. Um, for some, it's social action and um, working to make the world a better place in a lot of um, other ways. Um, and, in, and, and in this case, um, sometimes it can be through connecting with your past through studying and perpetuating the different sort of subparts of, uh, of our culture. It's interesting to note that this has gone on in many places. The language of Yiddish is sort of a, a, a conglomeration of Hebrew and, um, and German. Um, in almost every country, there are dialects that are like that, um, that they are a, a conglomeration of Hebrew and um, the language in which they live. Probably the most famous second one is a language called Ladino, which is a connection and a conglomeration of Spanish and, um, and Hebrew. But indeed, actually, there are um, uh, close to, probably close to 100 different languages. Um, most of them are on their way out and many of them have been lost, but they are the same thing. They are a mixture of an indigenous language and Hebrew. And so we see this um, come up a lot, but in America, it's mostly Yiddish is the, is the primary example of such a language. Yiddish is definitely very fascinating, especially from a linguistic standpoint, since there's not really any other languages in existence that are quite like it or that have such a strong tie to specific cultures or uh, faiths. Yes. And I also appreciate uh, the work you do to help preserve the language and keep it alive. It's nostalgic work a little bit. It's, it's a little bit bittersweet because it's almost as if the extinction of Yiddish, one might say, is inevitable. That's what happens with languages, you know. But for a lot of us, um, especially the older set of us, we remember it as a language that our grandparents spoke. Um, we remember it, some of us, as a language that our parents spoke when they didn't want us to understand things. Um, but it is very rich in humor and expressions that are, you know, refreshingly sort of frank and out there. And, um, and, and it's fun. And therefore, it really is a source of enjoyment for many people to remember and to learn it or maybe to relearn it or to learn it from anew. Um, and yet there's a bittersweet element of it because it is, it is leaving us gradually. So. I suppose you're right. I'm a little bit more optimistic because I keep seeing all these different uh, movements all over the world, not just in the U.S., that are dedicated towards preserving the language and educating people on it. And then a lot of people that aren't even Jewish are learning about it just because they love linguistics so much, myself included. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also, by the way, among the ultra-Orthodox, the group that we call the Haredi Jews, because, um, and these are the ones that are pretty easily identifiable because like many things, they prefer to live um, in the lifestyle and dress in the lifestyle of the peasantry in Poland um, in the 16-1700s and because of that same reason um, because that group of people used Yiddish as their mother tongue even today they prefer to and continue to speak Yiddish in their homes to each other um, and, and so they are also helping to sort of keep um, Yiddish alive as a language because they are continuing to you know use it as their um, uh, one of their main ways of communication.
I think that's really fascinating. So uh, Seaside Jewish Community also has a lot of different uh, musical departments and aspects. So what role does music play in your faith? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I would be challenged to think of any religious faith that doesn't use music. And I think the answer is just so much, it's obvious in, in, in the same way that looking at the ocean really brings you into, um, can bring you into a spiritual sense and a spiritual feeling, so can music. Music has an additional component to it, is that when it's sung together as a group, then the combination of not only um, your own singing, but your own listening and your own hearing and your own feeling those around you that are singing something else, that in itself is very spiritual. And mind you, right now in our, um, our um, pandemic, I would say that that's the one thing that I, I would say maybe all of us, but I know that we feel this way at Seaside, that all of us are really missing because um, as, as fantastic as this technological tool of Zooming and as being in one place and me speaking to you, which by the way is incredible for someone my age who, um, you know, who as a kid just could not believe that really one day we'd be able to have a phone conversation, um, you know, and actually be able to see each other live. That seemed just completely out of the realm of reality. So, um, but unfortunately one of the disadvantages of this or the disadvantages still maybe yet to come is the technology so that we can sing together or say something together in unison and not it sound garbled and you know whatever how, how that works so perhaps that'll come but um but right now that you know that's sort of missing so so that piece um has really made music really important and really crucial um there are many jewish communities who that's what their prayer is centered upon and that's what they really like to really emphasize and to do mostly um, is to sing together so that they can hear and listen to each other. And likewise, we do that also at, um, at Seaside. Um, in addition, there is not only the singing together, but there's also, there's listening to somebody else singing. And uh, certainly that's a big part of um, some of our prayer and some of our prayer styles. Um, and um, truth be told, we've been doing this for as long as we can, um, uh, I, I would dare say, uh, document, um, meaning that there are indications that um, from some of the Psalms that we read and that um, are, are in one of all of our books of the Bible, it's kind of clear that there were um, instrumental pieces that were playing in the temple. And so we can uh, assume, I think, from that, that that was part of the temple prayer and temple uh, rituals. And really, you know, since that, we've been, you know, sort of toying with that and playing with that and continuing that in some ways in order to enhance our prayer experience. So what does uh, tikkun olam mean? Tikkun olam is um, an expression that literally means the repair of the earth. And... The expression is used in many of our prayers. Um, and I should say that um, our, our prayers, I would almost say 50-50 or maybe 50-40, um, uh, much of our prayers come from the Bible itself, but a good portion of our prayers also come from um, 
what I would call the rabbinic period, which is the period of time roughly from the year zero um, till about the year six, 700, when uh, the a newly invented um, uh, occupation, meaning rabbis, um, were invented and they sort of created and um, uh, evolved uh, a, uh, a Judaism that included uh, different kinds of prayers and different kinds of rituals from what had come before them because what had come before them was um, uh, temple rituals and temple sacrifice and temple Judaism, you might say. And by this, I don't mean temple as in a modern day synagogue. I mean the holy temple. And so they created a lot of prayers. And I believe it's one of their terms to think of tikkun olam as a repairing of the world. Um, you could probably um, uh, fast forward another thousand years or at least uh, 17, 1800 years where um, I would almost say Jews had the luxury of starting to look around and know that, well, besides taking care of ourselves, we also should really focus on taking care of the world outside of us. And the reason I say that they were allowed to is because to a great extent for um, a great period of that time, um, Jews were confined by other authorities to live either in one place, either in ghettos, in a place where they were confined, and they weren't really allowed to look and to interact very much outside of the world um, that they were in. So now um, uh, that they were allowed to, um, they started looking outside. And so now in um, modern and contemporary Judaism, um, what tikkun olam means to, um, uh, uh, to Jews now is um, what I would call, you know, social action. Um, moving outside of their community to help others who are um, uh, less fortunate than they are um, through issues like hunger, um, through issues like um, disease control, um, and also a, what I would call political social action, also being involved politically to help make the world a more just place. Sometimes people will call that um, uh, justice work or social, ju social justice work. And so uh, tikkun olam sort of encompasses all of these things. And um, as I indicated before, it has become a very, um, I don't want to use the word popular because that might sort of um, diminish it a little bit. I don't mean pop, but I mean um, that has become a very common way for Jews to feel that that's the way that they can connect to their Judaism um, that has the most meaning to them, that they feel like they're doing something Jewish when they're doing something to help make the world a better place. And um, we certainly welcome that. And um, I would venture to say that there are very, very few synagogues in America that don't see this as part of their goal and part of what they want to offer to people saying, if come on into our community, because one of the things that our community is very involved in and likes being involved in is tikkun olam and helping the world be a better place for everybody. That's a very beautiful sentiment and one of the things that the seaside jewish community does to help repair the world is uh, their interfaith initiative could you tell us a little bit more about that yes sure it's great um yes uh so one of the interesting things that's a little bit different from many synagogues and um also probably a little bit different from a lot of people that end up at um seaside is that um 
there are not a lot of Jewish communities, Jewish organizations, or Jewish synagogues in the immediate area. And that can sometimes be a disadvantage, but in a lot of ways, it has really um, accelerated the extent to which um, Jewish communities look to other communities of faith as places to um, interact, to learn from, to learn with. And um, in, in this case, and I think this is what you're referring to especially, um, is to um, uh, pursue that tikkun olam and that social justice with. And so it, they, it has become sort of a natural partnership of Seaside to work with the other communities of faith um, uh, uh, to, um, to accelerate our work and to promote our work of social justice, to make um, our world a better place, to make our country a better place. And yes, probably to make, in our case, you know, Sussex County in the Delmarva Peninsula a better place and a more just place for, for everybody. And so um, that has been, um, uh, in some ways, I might describe it um, more in our face than it might be if we are a community, for instance, in, um, in, in Philadelphia, where I'm talking to you from, where there are plenty of Jewish communities around. And so it, it's very easy to go about your life, one might say too easy, and, and not to have to reach out or interact or do anything with someone of a different faith or, or by the way, a different color. Um, and um, not as uh, easy to fall into that, what I would call that a little bit of a trap um, than it is in, uh, in, in Sussex County, where it is um, uh, really easy to reach out and to see not only the need for that, but the ease of working with other um, houses of faith and with other people to, um, uh, to promote these things. Thank you for sharing that. So one of the aspects that makes Judaism so unique from other religions is that there's not a concrete afterlife belief with many Jewish people having various opinions and views about what happens after we die. Some sects are more partial to certain views than others. Since uh, your community features various Jewish sects altogether, how do these differing views both coexist and interact with each other? The Judaic belief of afterlife has definitely evolved, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit um, over the uh, at least 2000 and maybe you could say more years, uh, depending upon how accurate or um, uh, accurate historically the Bible is, but at least for 2000 years and probably for a couple of thousand more, let's just say. Um, and um, uh, those beliefs have... I don't know if the, you could say that the beliefs have changed, but let's say the degree to which um, Jews of that period of time have embraced those different beliefs might have changed. Um, one of the things that people um, uh, misunderstand um, is um, the Jewish belief in the afterlife, especially as it relates to heaven and hell. Um, and in fact, um, if you look at our texts, there is certainly no shortage of references to both um, heaven and hell. Um, heaven, especially in terms of the, um, uh, the messianic age and an age of time where um, everybody, where the world is perfect and, um, and everybody returns to that world. That is definitely in our texts and that is definitely in our tradition. Um, 
I would say that both of these concepts, the idea of a, um, of a, um, uh, a, a punishment place like hell or a reward place like heaven, um, that I think took a, um, a little bit of a detour and a little bit of evolving, um, especially among American Jews and especially during a period of time where we felt the need to sort of differentiate ourselves from the majority culture and the majority religion, which was Christianity. And so you do have a group of people um, generation-wise who um, think erroneously, oh, we don't have heaven and hell in our tradition. And it's actually not so true, but um, that was sort of promoted or that was sort of perpetuated, especially during that period of time where we felt we really needed to differentiate ourselves from Christian theology. Um, and, and I will say that I think that that period of time is somewhat over. Um, I think now, and I think it's a good thing, that now uh, instead we look a lot more towards what we have in common with other people, including Christian society in America, rather than what we have that's very different than them. But there is one difference that definitely has affected us, and this is a strong um, traditional difference in that one of the differences that we do believe, and this is certainly the case, is that we don't believe that um, the afterlife, whether it be an afterlife of punishment in hell or of reward in heaven, um, the afterlife is not considered an incentive for us for good behavior. In Judaism, there is a very, very strong belief that you do what's good, you do what's ethical and moral, and you do what's good for the world and for others um, because of the satisfaction that you will get from that and because it's the right thing to do. Not because if you do this, you'll go here. If you don't do this or if you do something worse, you'll go there. So that, I think, is one of the big differences theologically. Um, when you ask me, um, what do most Jews believe? I can't even give you an answer. Um, I, I think that it is, it is all over the place. I would also actually push back a little bit that, and I assume when you say sects, you mean like different denominations, as in Reform or Conservative or Orthodox Judaism. Um, yes. I'm not even sure if those um, differences would correlate or define in terms of where people are in terms of what they think of the afterlife. Um, uh, I would say there might be a mild correlation that perhaps um, more so in the Orthodox and in ultra-Orthodox, they may believe strong, more strongly in some sort of afterlife, in some sort of messianic age. But I'm not sure how strong that would be. And I would venture to guess, and I'm just guessing, that um, besides that population and that group, uh, my guess it would be all over the place in terms of what people believe. Well, that certainly is fascinating that not just at Seaside Jewish community, but all over the world, Jewish people have all sorts of different ideas about what their faith means to them and what they think may happen when we die, but they all still coexist together in a peaceful way. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure if you could say it's entirely peaceful. <laughs> at present, we're not doing a lot of physically harming each other. But, um, you know, we do have um, struggles. Um, I like to think, and I think this is true, that um, part of the um, 
uh, uh, part of the advantages of the American experience of American Judaism is, um, is developing, growing up with, interacting with a society that places a very, very high value on um, getting along with each other and, um, and uh, moving forward in, uh, in, in nonviolent ways. And I think that to a great extent, um, has that, have we embraced that because we're Jewish or have we embraced that because we're surrounded by a culture that also embraces that? Um, I think both of those things are probably true. Um, but it has definitely been one of our challenges as we've gone forward is that how to embrace all of these things um, and to embrace the different ways that Jews um, have chosen um, to sort of express their Judaism. And um, it isn't without its challenges, but um, to a great extent, um, I think that we have um, done a pretty good job of recognizing at least that we all consider um, each other Jewish, even though that we have, um, you know, chosen to express that Judaism in different ways. And, um, and, and that seems to be working for us um, for the most part. So uh, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, but what does uh, Lador Vador mean and how do you practice it? Uh -huh. So Lador Vador literally means um, uh, to generation and generation. And um, we use um, that expression mostly to talk about um, either a goal or a consideration or something to um, either look forward to perpetuate something forever from one generation to the next, or sometimes we also look at it in terms of looking backwards and looking at our previous generations of things that we want to bring from generation to generation to, um, to promote because we think that either they're good for the world or they're good for Judaism, or perhaps they're just pleasing to us. Um, not all of the thing that we have in our past um, are things that we may want to promote and bring from generation to generation. I think more and more we recognize that. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing and then maybe for all of society and maybe in American society to realize that everything in the past that we did um, may not have been the best move, may not have been the best thing that we did, um, but to continue to look forward and to try to improve them. But um, when we do want to bring something um, along with us um, from generation to generation, um, whether it is something as um, simple or you might say superficial, but whether that's a recipe that our grandmother used um, or uh, whether that's a way that our grandfather prayed or carried on a ritual um, with, or something a lot more um, profound. And that is something like having devoted your lifetime to social justice because of uh, that you want to do that um, because of something that your grandparents did or something that your or, or way that your grandparents were. So we would say that that would be bringing something Lador Vador from generation to generation and making those connections. So as you can imagine, um, that something is very, very valuable for a, um, a Judaic tradition that is quite old. And in fact, um, you know, a little bit older than Christianity, which is a little bit older than Islam, um, but perhaps not quite as old as some of the other um, uh, religions 
with which we find ourselves now interacting and learning from and doing all those things, you know, more and more. But at least we have enough of that history that for us, that's something that's really valuable to us. Do you have any prayers you would like to share with our audience today? This is a prayer. Um, and it's just one line of a prayer. Um, but it's the last line in um, a prayer that is recited quite often. Um, and as anyone who's heard speeches or listens to things or listens to prose, um, and the first thing I can think of is we're recording this the day after the um, graduation, and I'm thinking of that um, young African-American woman, the uh, youth poet laureate and her poetry yesterday. And last lines of all things like that are the things that sort of you're left ringing in your ears. And I think that um, that makes this particular part of the prayer that I'd like to share with people um, uh, uh, sort of important. Um, the other thing about this prayer is that it's gone through a little bit of um, evolution. And the reason I mean that is I think of two pieces of, um, um, you could say editing, that's sort of what it is, that have come through this prayer um, uh, because of two feelings and two forces that have um, much more recently in the past 10, 20, 30 years um, been forces that have come to Judaism and also tell you something about Judaism. So the prayer is basically a prayer of peace. And when it starts off, it starts off with the words, Oset Shalom Vimromav, that um, he who brings peace from, um, from above. And um, of course, Hebrew is a language that's gendered. And so we can't really refer in the third person to anything or anyone without using one of two gender, gendered forms. And one of the things that has changed about um, uh, prayer and some prayers is trying to make the language of it less alienating for those who are alienated by us referring to God or seemingly referring to God in the masculine. Um, and so that's one way that sort of the prayer has been altered in some cases. And the way they do that is when they're repeating this prayer, sometimes they might use the feminine form and sometimes they might use the masculine form. And the other thing um, that has been included is originally this prayer was asking for um, peace on the entire world and for Israel. And one of the things, and, and by Israel, they don't mean um, uh, just Israel, the country. They mean the people of Israel, all Jews. And another thing that's been added to that, and this has been a more permanent and common fixture, is also to add um, the words um, in Hebrew and in English and all of the inhabitants of the earth um, as a way of indicating that we're not being exclusive, that we're asking for just prayer and peace for ourselves. And so um, the prayer, which is, um, as I said before, after at the end of two prayers that are said very often, one is our silent devotion prayer that we say every time we have a service, which for Jews is three times a day that we are supposed to pray. And um, a prayer called the Kaddish, which is added in certain forms and different forms at the end of each section of prayer. So you can imagine that at least three times a day, and even more than that, we will say this line. And the line is, Oseh Shalom B'Mromav, Hu Ya'aseh Shalom, Aleinu V'Al Kol Yisrael V'Al Kol Yoshvei Tevel V'Imru Amen. 
the maker and the one who brings peace to um, from above. shalom. Please, he bring peace to us. shalom. Aleinu on us. Ve'alkol Yisrael and all the people of Israel and on all the inhabitants of the earth. And that's how we end our prayer. And I think that um, today, especially, and as I said before, we are um, uh, recording this a day after the inauguration. I think there is um, a, a little bit of hope out there, a little bit of optimism, a little bit of um, positive feeling that from um, all of the things that we are struggling with right now, that we will go forward with that. And I think that that's a really you know, nice way of bringing um, that prayer to everybody um, as we pray for, um, uh, for peace and for wholeness also of our earth together. If you would like to learn more about Seaside Jewish Community and take online Yiddish courses, visit www.seasidejewishcommunity.com.